0: This is Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years, the stories behind inventions. Episode 2, A Faustian Pact. In the story of the technology behind the information age, there are plot lines and patterns that keep repeating, like musical themes or poetic tropes. Some of the leitmotives, the recurring themes you might listen out for over the next episodes, include repeated references to crossing continents, to the state of New Jersey, patents, Germans, the Santa Clara Valley, California, networks, materials, Italians, Britons... The Big Four. Philanthropy. Bewildering speed. Inventors who underestimate the impact of their inventions. Prizes. I shall start today. Gosh, where? History is a, is a long thread. Where to go back and where to cut. I, I shall go back more than 600 years and snip at somewhere around the year 1400. What we uncover will give you goose flesh, I guarantee. Around 1400, much of the world was just recovering from its greatest ever disaster, the Black Death. This was a pandemic of bubonic plague that wiped out somewhere between 30% and 60% of the entire population of Europe and Western Asia. "'Over a hundred million people are estimated to have died "'out of a population of 450 million. "'Those who did survive were left to wonder "'why such a catastrophe had befallen.' This medieval age had no concept of germ theory, of course, nor any understanding of such vectors of disease as fleas and rats. When things went wrong, they were likely to see the wrath of God as the primary agency of their misfortune, and the wrath of God could be actuated by nothing but their own wickedness. Once it became apparent that the pestilence had begun to clear, many hundreds of thousands of the survivors made it their mission to supplicate the angry Creator in the best way available to them, to go on a pilgrimage, a journey to visit and pay homage to the great holy shrines of Christendom. There they could grovel, apologize, praise, beg, and beseech God, Mary, Jesus, and the saints, in the hope that no more of these cataclysms would be visited upon them, and that their place in heaven would be assured. It took effort, pain, sacrifice, danger, and a great deal of time. God was always pleased by demonstrations of suffering of this kind. Anyone who has seen devout Mexicans to this day travelling hundreds of miles to the shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe on their knees will know that many believe our Creator is still impressed by such mortifications of the flesh. The richer citizens in late 14th century Europe could afford to shortcut the pain and penance and go straight to a state of grace by purchasing what were called indulgences. Kindly monks in their scriptoria wrote these out on parchment. An indulgence was essentially a moral blank check forgiving sins for the living or shortening the periods of purgatory for the souls of the dead indulgences were sold, through the grace of His Holiness the Pope in Rome, to anyone who could afford them. This trade provided a fine income stream for the Church, and as a kind of sin-offset voucher, guaranteed the rich full absolution and forgiveness, up to and including the value of their voucher, until the expiry date indicated on each indulgence. The longer the period of grace, the more expensive the document. Papal indulgences were produced with expiry dates of 20,000 years, and in a few recorded cases 45,000 years, leaving the lucky owner with a world of sin to, to well, to indulge in. The Catholic tradition of indulgences continues even now, twice a century. Every holy or jubilee year, indulgences are granted to this very day. They're no longer paid for with cash, but with prayer and a pilgrimage to Rome during the jubilee year, and the visiting and prostrating of oneself at certain designated basilica church shrines, where a gift is also expected, all currencies welcome. Back in the 14th and 15th centuries, all this made great sense. The terrifying power of God and his plague could only be interpreted by priests, who were, after all, just about the only people, aside from lawyers, their clerks, and some of the aristocracy, who could read. Unambiguous interpretations thundered from the pulpits. Mankind had fallen short of God's requirements and must pay in money and penance to the church. For the rich... "'indulgences, for everyone else, "'whatever they could summon up from their villages "'when they left on their community's behalf for pilgrimage. "'At each holy stop along the road, "'the pilgrim would be expected to pay "'for the privilege of access to each shrine "'and for the reward of a blessing "'from the local priests and monks.' Of course, some people secretly wondered if God wasn't more angry at the staggering wealth of the Church, at their practice of selling indulgences and living so high on the hog while everyone else endured poverty and subsistence living, but they did not dare voice such blasphemous thoughts out loud, and besides they had no means of transmitting such suspicions, for all writing was controlled by the Church.' One man who did allow himself a few wry satirical observations on the fatness of monks and the carnality of priests was the English poet Geoffrey Chaucer. He grew up during the height of the Black Death's terrors and wrote his masterpiece The Canterbury Tales just as Europe was waking up from it. It's an extended poem that follows a group of pilgrims as they leave a pub on the south bank of London one sunny April day and ride for Canterbury Cathedral, where the revered bones of the martyred St Thomas a Becket might intercede with God on their behalves. To beguile the time, each of them tells a tale as they proceed at a Canterbury trot, or as the word has been shortened to, a canter. Some of the pilgrims would have regarded Canterbury as only the first stop on their pilgrimage. Many would go on to cross the Channel to France, the Low Countries, and Germany, travelling through a succession of new and stunning Gothic masterpieces like Reims, Tours, or Aachen, all the way down to the Pyrenees and through to Spain, where a grand route would take them to the shrine of Santiago de Compostela, that cathedral that housed the bones of Christ's disciple Santiago, or St. James, as we call him, brother of John, and the first apostle to be martyred. For even more pious and adventurous pilgrims, Santiago de Compostela was only a staging post to their final destination, the Holy Land itself, featuring stop-offs at Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and the Sea of Galilee. By the time we are interested in, however, the late 1300s and into the 1400s, the Crusades were over. Christendom lost, and Jerusalem was now in Islamic hands, controlled by the Sultanate of Mamluk Turks. A side note here, the period we're looking at spans the 14th and 15th centuries. Have you noticed how these days the BBC and their documentaries and even school textbooks no longer say the 15th century? They tend to say the 1400s, assuming that people can't subtract one from the number of the century. So the American War of Independence wasn't in the late 18th century, but in the late 1700s. Queen Victoria reigned in the 1800s, not the 19th century and so on. I don't mind that particularly, all for clarity. But since we manage to say 20th and 21st centuries without hiccups, it seems a bit odd to assume that most people can no longer handle the traditional way to describe a 100 year period? Perhaps it's just me. What do you think? I'll probably never know. Anyway, savage, boiling, cursing rant over. The Pilgrim's Way, known as the Camino de Santiago, from the French Pyrenees across to Spanish Galicia and the cathedral itself, is popular to this day. But it was so popular in the 14th and 15th centuries, if you know what I mean, that when you... "'the tired pilgrim finally arrived at the Compostela, "'there was almost no chance of your getting to see "'so much as a sliver of St. James's bones.' Indeed, every reliquary, every resting place of relics, martyr's bones, fragments of the true cross, and so on, on the pilgrimage routes, was overcrowded with eager pilgrims in those days, so desperate were they all for salvation after the unspeakable horrors of plague, so overcrowded that those at the back of a church rarely got a chance to see the holy objects that they had spent so much time, money, and energy in going to visit." Once a day the bishop of the cathedral would stand at the crossing in front of the altar and present the bones or clothes of the saint, which often wept with magically self-restoring blood. Only the lucky ones who pressed forward or who had paid to get to the front would have their souls replenished by a sight of the wonder. Even in hierarchical and mostly socially immobile Europe at this time, there was space for bold entrepreneurs— One such was a German silver and goldsmith, inventor, and serial entrepreneur from the Rhineland town of Mainz called Johannes Gensfleisch, which means goose flesh. He was born the same year that Chaucer died, 1400. Aged 30 or thereabouts, Gensfleisch had the idea, with friends, of making charming and magical mirrors which he could sell to pilgrims. They were a technological marvel. You, the pilgrim, hungry for the shriving and purification of your soul, stood calmly at the back of the church when the hour came for the resident priest or bishop to reveal his sacred relic. The mugs ahead of you, jammed forward, desperate to see, you simply raised your mirror like a periscope as high as you could. At the base of the pole you opened a little box with silvered sides that was sold together with the pole and mirror. It worked like this. "'The high mirror, angled just right, caught the image of the relic "'and flashed it down to the inside of the box. "'This done, you could snap the box shut and leave the church, "'the holy light and sight and power of the relic mystically trapped inside your box. "'You could then, in private prayer, open the box again "'and allow the holy rays to bathe you and cleanse you of your sins.' A bit like videoing the gig and then coming home and watching it at your leisure. Now, you and I might think that this was something of a con. We can't know if Herr Gensfleisch really, truly believed in it himself, but it was a marketing opportunity in this age of pilgrimages, and the young man threw himself at it with vim and vigour. His plan was to capture the market in Pilgrims heading for Aachen, also known as Aix-la-Chapelle, famed for its relics. He would undercut the competition, for magic healing ray mirrors were a big business, by using his metallurgical skills to print out the convex mirrors using pressing machines that were even now springing up for the manufacture of lenses. Fortunately, the enterprise was a failure. Another round of plague hit Aachen. His investors left him and the business collapsed. I say it was fortunate that he failed because this failure pushed him on to another entrepreneurial invention. And that one, while it might also ultimately fail to make him his fortune, was a resounding success and certainly made him his name for all posterity and all time. Arguably, or perhaps unarguably, it was the greatest human invention of all. Without it, none of the stunning, shattering inventions that have changed our world and how we live forever could have happened. All human progress, after his invention, depended on it. It made his name famous throughout the world. At this point, you may be wondering why the name of... Gensfleisch, isn't familiar to you. Perhaps Johannes himself had a suspicion that if his new project succeeded he ought to trade under a more dignified name than Gooseflesh, and so he changed it. He may, of course, have done this because debtors were on his trail owing to the failure of his magic relic ray mirror and box system, but for whatever reason Johannes dropped the Gensfleisch and adopted the name of his family's house in Mainz, styling himself thenceforward Johannes Gutenberg. Around this time, Gutenberg had moved down the Rhine from Mainz to Strasbourg— I should more properly say that although that took him south, he did, of course, go up the Rhine to relocate. I get as confused about what upriver and downriver mean as others get confused by the numbers assigned to historical centuries. In the prosperous city of Strasbourg, he tried to raise as much money as possible for the astounding invention that had been taking shape in his mind. Gutenberg and his family had made their name in metalwork, specifically in gold and silversmithing. The invention he was pondering would combine his knowledge of working hot and molten metals with other technologies that had yet fully to coalesce in his mind. He believed that if he got it all right, it would make him a staggering amount of money. The world's richest paymaster would be the instrument of his fortune, the Roman Catholic Church. Suppose, instead of monks painstakingly copying out litanies, missals, psalters, and other liturgical and necessary documents, literally in manuscript, which is Latin for written by hand, suppose a machine could do the writing and produce hundreds, thousands of identical copies, one after the other, in next to no time. And maybe not just documents, maybe a whole book. Not just A whole book, but the book, the Holy Bible itself. Gutenberg believed it was possible. He needed money for his audacious start-up and found an investor who gloried in the name of Faust. Jakob Faust. Faust advanced Gutenberg 800 guilders. According to the International Institute of Social History's Comparative Currency Analyzer, that would amount to just about 100,000 euros. What was the state of mechanical text rendering at this time? The world had long known of a way of reproducing writing to an impressively efficient but limited extent by carving text and illustration onto blocks of wood or rather cutting away everything that wasn't text or illustration so that what you wanted stood out proud from the rest of the wood. The block could then be inked and pressed to paper like a a school art room potato print. This was fine as far as it went, but to have to carve in perfect back-to-front writing the entirety of the Bible, one block of wood for every page, that wasn't any use at all. Gutenberg would be dead of old age before he'd got halfway through the Old Testament. No, what was needed was movable type, lots of individual carved versions of the letters that could be rearranged and realigned page by page, porcelain movable type had been developed in China in the 11th century, and a technology involving movable metal type arrived in Korea mid-14th century. It is likely, probable even, but of course unprovable, that news of this superior Far Eastern technology would have reached European ears thanks to traders and Christian missionaries. Gutenberg's first great innovation was to use his expertise as a metal worker to create accurate, durable and almost infinitely reproducible metal characters using a hand mould and matrix system. He would carve a master letter, say an E, which he could press into molten alloy to make a female mould or matrix. Gutenberg the smith was on familiar ground here. Matrices could be made for each letter, character, number and sign he required. Molten metal was poured into the moulds, it cooled and hardened, a process known as casting. A whole family of one type of lettering was cast in Gutenberg's foundry, and so typecasting was born. This process was straightforward enough for a skilled master metalworker like Gutenberg, but required extreme care. The great thing about casting was that he could produce hundreds, thousands of each character from their moulds. The family of type, being cast in the foundry, was called a font or font. "'Each letter had to share the same angles of upward tick or serifs, "'the same proportions in everything. "'The height of the ascenders of an H or B "'should match the length of the descenders in a P or J, for example. "'If you've ever used font-designing software, "'you know that it constrains your lines for you to help with proportionality. "'Gutenberg and his workers had to carve by hand.' "'Perhaps they had loop lenses to help with the close-up work, but it can't have been easy. "'I've tried it myself at a blacksmith's forge, and it's hot and fiddly work. "'Remember, the finished letter, having gone through the mould and matrix process, "'was now raised at one end, but back to front, "'for its final destiny was to be inked and pressed onto a piece of paper "'which would finally set it the right way round for reading.' Of course, when making the letters, you can always test each one you carve by pressing it to a waxy surface, checking its proportion and finish, and comparing it to your master scheme. If Gutenberg's technology was going to threaten the stunningly beautiful manuscripts of the monks, it was vital that the end product displayed eye-catching, breath-stopping grace, clarity and elegance. The master scheme, the actual font design, is reckoned to have been the work of an ex-scribe and stationer, apprentice to Gutenberg, called Peter Scherther, who lives on in Scherferhofer, a brand of wheat beer named after him. I've tried it. It's very nice, mit ein Schuss Himbeer, with a shot of raspberry, uh, but it does make me burp, and worse. The font that Scherfer and Gutenberg came up with was what we would call a, a Gothic or black-letter type, the sort familiar in most northern European printed books for centuries, and used as a typeface in Germany right up until the collapse of the Third Reich, when a modern and forward-looking post-Nazi Germany abandoned black-letter script and joined the rest of Roman alphabet-using Europe in adopting the lighter, more graceful, and to our eyes clearer and more legible Latin-based scripts that had been developed in Italy, the serifed families that have evolved into times Roman, Plantin, Garamond, Bembo, Baskerville, and so on, and the plainer modernist sans-serif families like Helvetica, Avenir, Gil-Sans, and the rest. Anyway, back to the workshop circa 1450. The individual letters, now cast, were arranged in open compartments, known as cases, ranked in alphabetical or sometimes common use or vowel consonant order. The capital letters, sometimes called majuscule, were stored in the upper cases. The minuscule were stored in the lower cases, which is why we refer to upper and lower case lettering to this day. Not easy to tell the letter Q from the letter P right next door to it in alphabetical order, unless you were careful, hence the importance of minding your P's and Q's. All the typed characters were known as sorts, that type of thing, that sort of thing. If you had run down your stock and found you were missing some letters or characters, you were out of sorts. So Gutenberg, bankrolled by Faust and assisted by capable, literate, and efficient staff, and after much trial and error, with the right mixtures of metal, the most economical, durable, and workable alloy of lead, tin, and antimony, and after a great deal of tinkering with hand moulds and the unifying and harmonisation of letter design and type sizing, could now produce fully assorted cases of all sorts— Two hundred and ninety separate letterboxes, historians estimated, for his hundreds of identical E's and other vowels, his battery of consonants, commas, flourishes, ligatures, punctuation marks, fancy scrolls and accents. The next stage was to compose each line of text, working back to front. Gutenberg wanted his text to be beautiful, a creation for the ages, a proof of concept, the printing equivalent of a show home. Text was to be aligned, or justified, on the right as well as the left margins, and so he incorporated all kinds of spaces to kern, compress, expand, and make each line pleasingly proportioned, avoiding the unsightly trails of white space that could wind up and down a page, spoiling the effect and distracting the eye. The compositor, as the one who prepared the text was called, took a wooden frame called a chase and had now to set the letters line by line. He would check what the text for the first line would be from a handwritten master copy and then pick up, with tweezers or by hand, we can't know for sure, the first letter and place it on the extreme right. We read from left to right, but because everything had to be done back to front, the compositor, of course, had to work backwards and inside out. You or I might check our accuracy using a mirror, but master compositors soon became able to read back to front more quickly and accurately than the right way round, one line at a time, until the page was typeset. There is now a perfectly aligned and composited body of text, held securely in the chase... This body of text is called a form, spelt F-O-R-M-E. With the form tight, set and immovable, we are ready for the next stage. And what is the next stage? Well, you could roll a roller of ink over the text and then lay a piece of paper over the form to print an impression, but properly to print off lots of pages, you needed something to press onto the paper accurately and reliably, time after time, to press, press, press. In the first episode of this podcast series, I talked about calories and how early man, as he developed language, cognition and a greater insight into the ways of the natural world, was able to save labour calories by harnessing natural forces like fire, gravity and wind, and construct simple calorie-efficient mechanical devices. Windmills, watermills and sailing boats are all examples of this. Another good use of human calorie-saving ingenuity was the wine press. It took a bit of work to pull round the lever that turned the screw that lowered the bed of a press with sufficient pressure to squash hundreds and thousands of grapes, or indeed olives, or apples, or whatever else you wanted to juice, but the scale of such a machine meant that it certainly took fewer calories and much, much less time than would be required to press each fruit singly.' Such screw presses were a common sight in Rhineland Germany and all over most of Europe. If you couldn't afford one yourself, you could get a load of fruit pressed by taking it round to a local presser, much as today we might take documents for batch reproduction to a copy shop. Gutenberg saw that the garden wine press, with its central threaded screw and lever, could be repurposed for his needs. They had already been adapted for use in papermaking and the manufacture of lenses, He had thought of just that for printing the mirrors for his Pilgrim's Magic Ray device. Lenses were becoming more and more in demand for eyeglasses too, a growing industry in medieval Europe which is worth a digression. You're listening to Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. I'll be back after a short interval. were watching a film set in Chaucer's day and spotted an extra or leading actor wearing glasses, you'd probably hoot with laughter at such a terrible mistake. But actually, by Chaucer's and then Gutenberg's time, they were relatively old news, having been around since the 13th century, or the 1200s, if you prefer. The magnificent rood screen in the 14th-century Church of St Agnes in Corston, Norfolk, in whose choir I once sang so badly that the bishop himself begged me to stop, depicts many of the saints, one of whom, St Matthew, is portrayed sporting an unmistakable and strikingly modern-looking pair of spectacles. It's not an impertinent later addition, but original to the screen." St. Matthew wrote one of the Gospels, of course, had been a tax collector before Christ summoned him as a disciple, so in the medieval mind was a clerkly sort of fellow, best depicted with the spectacles that were now the rage in Europe. They were not cheap, but as we shall soon see, the very highest in Christendom favoured them. To some extent, one might consider that without spectacles and magnifying glasses, Gutenberg's technology would have been a great deal more expensive and harder to get off the ground. Most of his important clients would be likely to have been advanced in years enough to need reading glasses. And without their existence in the world, Gutenberg would have had to create pages of much, much larger type, pushing up the price of his printed works immeasurably. Printed books without glasses and lenses would not be quite as impossible as skyscrapers without elevators, but the development of the printing press does neatly demonstrate the synergistic nature of invention, how one small, convenient innovation opens the door to another massive one. Where were we? Honestly, you do have a way of sidetracking a fellow. Oh, yes, yes, the screw press. Now... Gutenberg needs something that would deliver downward force with much more accuracy and precision than a wine press. He hired a carpenter called Konrad Zaspach to make a press according to his specifications. Imagine a fine wooden structure as tall as you, assuming you're between five foot and seven foot tall. A central threaded spindle has a lever attached to it and a flat board or platen at its lower end. The lever, or bar, is nicknamed the devil's tail. Printing is filled, as we've already seen, with marvellous specialist words nicknames, slang and jargon. Pulling the devil's tail one way round lowers the platen, and pulling it the other way raises it. So far, so simple. I have to remind you how necessary it is for a book's pages all to be absolutely in alignment. The horizontals must be horizontal and the verticals perfectly perpendicular to them. The human eye catches any mistake and you have to throw it all away and start again. The form, snug in its chase with its perfectly set letters and characters, is set into a stone bed called a coffin. It's all tightly constrained and registered and calibrated. Now ink must be applied to the type. Water-based ink could run and blot, so Gutenberg developed his own oil-based ink, another crucial step in his cascade of innovations. Essentially, this ink was a kind of black varnish that would stick to the paper and keep its shape, shine and perfect definition and sharp resolution. The printmaster would take a marvellous leather pad for inking. It was a round pad made of dog skin stuffed with wool. Let us hope the dogs in question had died of natural causes. Their skin was preferred because dogs don't sweat and their hides are therefore impermeable, non-porous. This ball is applied to Gutenberg's special oil-based ink and then gently padded, rolled and pressed onto the rows of type. If you ever used a school printing press or those John Bull rubber-type kits, you'll know how important it is that the type is firmly set or the sticky ink will lift letters out of the form. Disaster. You lay the paper over the inked form. It should be damp paper because that keeps a better, clearer impression of the ink, the bite of the ink, as they call it. You align your damp paper in a frame called a frisket and cover it with a tympanum, a stretched cloth. "'Now you winch the table in with a windlass so that it lies exactly under the platen. "'You walk the devil's tail round to descend the platen "'onto this mixture of coffin, frisket, tympanum, form and chase. "'So many variables, so many ways to go wrong. "'Apply the ink unevenly and you've got a blotchy or non-uniformly black.' page. Align the page even slightly wrongly, and the human eye will pick up lines that are off-true, not parallel to the paper's edge. Precision was all. The slightest error, blemish, or misalignment was fatal to the enterprise. Try to imagine, if you can, the frustration, the botched, messy attempts, the effort, the labour, and, above all, the expense.' "'Paper was created by hand. "'It made some use of watermill power, "'but was a long process and consequently expensive. "'Vellum, parchment, derived from the dried and treated skin of calves, "'that was even more fantastically costly. "'I cannot describe the thrill of raising the platen, "'lifting off the paper, turning it, "'and seeing a perfectly printed page.' I don't need to describe it. Go to YouTube and enter the search Stephen Fry and the Gutenberg Press. I had a hand in a project to build a replica of Gutenberg's first press and we made a film about it. That moment, lifting a perfect page of paper that I had helped make in a paper mill in Basel, a perfectly beautifully printed page on one of whose lines was an E that I had carved and typecast... "'That was a moment I shall never forget. "'It gave me goose pimples, goose bumps, goose flesh. "'What a coup, Johannes Gutenberg, nay, Gensfleisch!' One can do little more than doff one's cap and bow. This was an achievement that was to transform the world, to shake and uproot the hierarchical tree that had seemed so firmly and permanently planted, fundamentally to shift the old medieval world order to usher in a new age, the first information age, to make us who we are today. When Gutenberg for the first time pulled the devil's tail round and the platen descended squarely on the face of the form, he fulfilled Archimedes' prophecy of 1,300 years earlier. Give me a lever long enough and a place to stand, and I shall move the world. Archimedes may not have imagined that the lever could be as short as the devil's tail, or that it would not move the world by main force, but by the release of billions of bits of information. But the inventor of the screw-pump would have rejoiced at the threaded spindle which the lever operated, and the man who leapt from the bath crying, Eureka! would surely have danced a jig of joy when he saw the first printed page, and the man who first understood the power of exponential numbers, would have nodded with understanding at the explosion of printing and the stunning proliferation of the communication of methods, techniques, messages and ideas that it spawned. But wait, before I get too excited, let's review. Thanks to movable type and the ability to cast thousands of letters, thanks to Gutenberg's special ink, thanks to a carefully orchestrated series of calibrated manoeuvres, he could print a hundred page ones, a hundred page twos and so on until he had a hundred identical copies of one book. I shan't go into the details of binding... But to work out which pages faced which and how they were sewn from their choirs and reams of folio and quinternian sizes and how many lines and columns flowed in which directions and how wide the margins were so that when the larger folios were bound together the book operated in the right way and how you checked the printing on the other side of a previously printed page, all these mathematical, geometrical, topological and logistical problems required quite as much thought and experimentation "'trial and error, failure and disappointment, "'inspiration and grinding calculation "'as the original technology itself. "'But he did it. "'Replaceable type that could be used again and again, "'sorted into new words and lines and pages as you wished. "'You print off as many copies of page one as you need "'while your print shop is compositing the chases "'for pages two and three. "'You have a workflow, a rhythm.' The aim was to produce, as I have said, a Bible, as the great proof-of-concept work. But the major proof-of-concept itself needed easy minor proofs of concept. The first printed pages to come hot off the Gutenberg Press were not the leaves of a book, but what else? Indulgences. The Church could not believe its luck. "'What would take a scriptorium full of monks and novices months to produce "'could now be knocked off in an afternoon. "'What a colossal saving of labour and time, the first licence to print money! "'This marketing masterstroke and the purring pleasure it gave the church "'allowed Gutenberg to seek permission to print his Bible. "'Such a thing had never been heard of before, of course. "'The church had complete control.' The Old Testament had originally been written in Hebrew and Aramaic, the New Testament entirely in Greek. A thousand years before Gutenberg, St. Jerome had set about translating both testaments into Latin. His version, known as the Vulgate, was one of many Latin texts authorised by the Church, and it was this version that Gutenberg and Faust settled on for their great project. The longer Gutenberg had taken to perfect every aspect from casting to binding, the more trouble he had servicing the debts he had taken out to get the technology up and running. He pleaded for extensions to his repayment deadlines, and he brought in new dragons, new partner investors, who put up cash for percentages of his business and its future profits. You know how entrepreneurialism works. It all meant that Gutenberg, who seems to have been lit by the internal fire that burns in many a passionate creative inventor granting creativity and energy but little time or sense for business was now in terrible debt to Faust. Having brought the technology to a viable, workable and consistent pitch he lost all the rights to any profits his printing press was ever going to make. Faust and the Mephistophelian Scherfer who aligned with him now owned the whole shebang and Gutenberg worked for them. Gutenberg, like so many of his kind, while he may not have had an eye for money, had a nose for his real goal, and there was the scent of triumph in his nostrils. After the success of the indulgences print-run, clean copies of his two-column and forty-two lines-a-page Bible began to emerge, mostly on paper, but some on sumptuous and expensive vellum. Somewhere between 160 and 180 Bibles were issued in all. By the mid-1450s, Pope Pius II had seen enough product to write an enthusiastic letter to one of his cardinals, singing the praises and physical beauty of this new wonder and its inventor. "'All that has been written to me about that marvellous man is true. I have not seen complete Bibles, but only a number of choirs of various books of the Bible.' "'The script was very neat and legible, not at all difficult to follow. "'Your Grace would be able to read it without effort, and indeed without glasses. "'Oh, pious! had you but known?' It all seemed so marvellous. We, the Roman Catholic Church, have access to this new technology. It saves and makes us money in the printing of indulgences, and now we can send authorised, error-free, identical copies of St. Jerome's Vulgate around Christendom and increase our stranglehold on the Word. When did it first cross His Holiness's mind that others might use this technology?' That in a world without effective patents, printing would spread and spread. From there being only 180 printed books in the world in 1456, there would be millions by 1500. That as soon as the year 1517, a monk called Martin Luther would protest precisely against the practice of indulgence sales and other Romish corruptions and found his protestant, or Protestant, religion. That the very technology that was supposed to tighten the stranglehold of the mother of churches in fact fatally loosened it. The idea that printing immediately weakened the grip of Aristotelian ecclesiasticism and opened the world to Neoplatonist humanism that began the Renaissance, that in turn opened the door to science and the age of reason that led the way to enlightenment, progress, harmony, democracy, and the open transmission of ideas— is a rather sentimental and oversimplified interpretation. After all, the Church soon regrouped and launched its counter-reformation using print technology to do so. The Vulgate became the sole authorised Bible. Those who tried to print copies of other Bibles, especially in their own language, were exiled, executed or tortured. From the press to the rack. All kinds of bad people saw the opportunity to harness the power of the printed word for their own ends, ends that could result in burnings, massacres, and wars. The speed of the transmission of information accelerated everything. You might say that the medieval world— had been like one of those sluggish, hormonally slowed-down catatonic patients in Oliver Saxe's book Awakenings, later made into a film with Robert De Niro and Robin Williams. Encephalitis lethargica was their affliction. Statue-like, motionless, with low body temperature, slow heart rate, zombie-like lethargy and stillness, they lived almost dormant lives. Saxe saw one such patient with just this disease who was otherwise perfectly healthy, save for a small tumour in his tummy. Sax injected his magical L-Dopa serum and the man swiftly woke from his torpor, totally restored, smiling, talking, remembering, fully awake and alive, everything back to speed, including his tumour. He was dead within two months killed by the stomach cancer which had awoken from its dormancy with the rest of him. You might regard Europe as having been in just such a torpid state. The arrival of printing was like an injection of life-giving serum into Europe. It awoke and energised the world, but aggravated all kinds of cancers of tribalism, sectarianism and rivalry too. In a manner all too familiar to us in our day, a cultural, intellectual, ideological and doctrinal chasm opened up in Europe. Culture wars that foreshadowed our own broke out. The Muslim world banned printing of Arabic or Islamic texts for centuries. Jews were banned from the printing trade and Christian countries forbade the printing of Hebrew texts. Propaganda took off. Edicts and attacks on Protestantism flew from Catholic presses and vice versa. As the historian Niall Ferguson argues in his book The Square and the Tower... The invention of movable type printing and the unleashing of what is known as the Gutenberg Revolution created social networks in which two sides countered each other with misinformation, fake news as we would have it now, vicious abuse, and, as in our time, all without supervision or a locus of recognisable authority, a free-for-all raging outside what had previously been structured hierarchies. Because anyone could use the invention, all kinds of bad actors and malevolent hustlers did use it. Technologies like printing, or any other information technologies that have followed in its wake, are essentially neutral, have no moral valency, no inner directive in and of themselves to act either for good or ill indulgences could be printed and broadsides attacking the corruption of indulgences could be printed just as easily das Kapital or Mein Kampf it's all the same to the type the paper and the platen the declaration of independence or the protocols of the elders of zion the sonnets of shakespeare or the thoughts of chairman mao collections of recipes for cake making or collections of recipes for bomb making All this is familiar to us, we who mourn the swift death of the utopian ideals promised by the internet and social media. The letter types in their boxes could seem like the evil spirits that flew from Pandora's box and released strife, starvation, war, and wickedness into the world. I've perhaps now gone too far the other way. After all, Impulses and new ways of thinking and exchanging ideas that were benevolent flourished too. To depict the Gutenberg Revolution as causing a human disaster is as sentimental and oversimplified as seeing it as having ushered in a golden age of open thought and perfect freedoms, or as regarding early humans moving from hunter-gatherers to agriculturalists as catastrophic, or looking on social networks and media as wholly calamitous. Part of what this series of podcasts is aiming to do is to come to terms with the inevitability of, let's call it change. Progress might be regarded as too freighted a word. Change, transformation, mutation, cultural evolution. These are our weather systems. Our historical and future landscapes were and are shaped by these processes, just as our geographical landscapes are shaped by the action of water and weather. To believe that we could or should halt them, or to waste time mourning their existential alterations to our ways of living, is, to put it crudely, to piss into the wind. The movable type revolution was necessary and never a genie that any sane person would want to be forced back into its bottle— Yes, cancers may have woken up in Europe at the same time as a new life surged through its bloodstream, but surely better a quick hot life, however cut short, than a permanent frozen nothingness, a catatonic zombie nullity. The key is not to bemoan or to overpraise change, but to attempt as best we may to know all we can about the transformative nature of our leaps of innovation and to understand them. For today, changes are coming that will dwarf the revolutions in information technology with which we are familiar. It has never been more important, in my view, to be armed with knowledge and understanding of our past in order to confront our future with anything like confidence. We look, for example, at the development of printing, and we can recognise in Gutenberg and his Faustian pact movers and shakers of our digital age – Steve Jobs, for instance, went almost ludicrously out of his way to add typography to the first Mac. Everyone thought he was mad to talk about proportional fonts at a time when computer display screens were black and characters were lit with a neon glow. Jobs insisted on design of such precision and attention to aesthetics and elegance that he pushed up prices and lost control of his own company, just like Gutenberg before him, and like Gutenberg, he hardly invented a single thing from scratch. But even if you loathe, as some do, everything to do with Apple, the effect of jobs bringing together graphical user interface computing, mice icons, windows, pull-down menus, graphical desktops and so on, combining nascent and disparate technologies into one harmonious entity, well, it did change the world. It's not about originality from scratch. It's about the age throwing up disparate technologies and the visionaries who bring them together in one overmastering innovation. Wine presses, spectacles, cocktails of metal alloys, mould and matrix, ink, all set against a world of start-ups, inadequately geared, bankruptcy, merciless venture capitalists who get all the money and a resultant cascade of social and cultural changes and advances that forever alter our history. Gutenberg is a hero to me, not his financier, Faust, who remembers financiers ever, nor the treacherous collaborators who took over and profited from his perfectionism and visionary brilliance. He cannot surely have guessed at how education, science, knowledge, creativity, politics and all human life would be changed utterly by his conjoining of oil-based inks, lead-tin and alloy-cast letters, and by the turning of the lever on his repurposed winepress. But his prize... His statues, streets and squares named after him, and eternal fame and admiration as one of the greatest heroes human history has brought forth. And, talking of prizes, next time I'm going to look at a valuable and quite incredibly influential prize instituted by Napoleon Bonaparte, a prize that sent shockwaves around the world at something close to the speed of light. Until then, farewell. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. Grateful thanks to our composer, Guy Farley. Also thanks to the Audio Network. For further information on the podcast series, visit stephenfry.com forward slash greatleapyears. Great Leap Years is produced by Andrew Sampson and Norman Goodman. This is a Sam Fry Limited production.